0: Hey everyone, today I had the honor of speaking with Pat Miletic, UFC Hall of Famer, UFC champion, creator of the Miletic Fight Systems, which has produced some amazing fighters such as Matt Hughes. uh, We discussed everything from world politics to fitness to training, his legendary gym, and everything in between. So I hope you guys enjoy this, this was a great conversation, and thank you. Well, uh, Pat, it's good to uh, finally get you out here. I'm happy to be with you, buddy. How have you been handling everything going on with the COVID? Well, it's interesting you say that because,
1: you know, I host a podcast called Conspiracy Forum, and the name is Deliberately Misleading the Mess People, because we we talk about geopolitical, and domestic policy stuff, and have a wide variety of guests, everybody from uh, world-renowned economists. Intelligence officials, former Tier One operators, you know, law enforcement officials, mayors, uh, state state uh, senators, you know, you name it. Uh, We've we've had a lot of those types of folks on, and uh, you know, we were talking about uh, bioweapons. Gosh, a year and a half before this hit, and we were also telling people that the financial collapse, worst financial collapse in world history, was going to hit in the spring of 2020. Uh, due to all the ridiculous quantitative easing that was going on since the 08 collapse, and so when it hit, <laughs> you know, we, we we knew that that uh, that this was all about a financial collapse and not about a virus. And I know a lot of people think, "Wait a minute, how can you say that?" The only reason I can say that is because we were covering it for so long, and I've been following financial metrics for 20 years, and we just we just knew it was coming.
0: Do you find that because you are so outspoken about certain subject matter like that, that you have people who are kind of be like, oh, Pat, stick to fighting, or do you use that kind of fuel to be like, hey, I'm still, I'm learning, I'm researching, I'm not just throwing these crazy ideas out?
1: Well, I mean, look, uh, there's always going to be those people that believe the television and believe the radio 100% and believe that their government is benevolent and cares about us and doesn't want us to get sick from a virus. Um, that, that's the way it is. Um, so it, it is what it is. And they'll say, you know, you suffer from CTE and this and that. And that's fine. Uh, but they can go back and listen to our shows and, and listen in detail, uh, you know, where we, we specifically talked about how this was all going to unfold. and You know, we, we didn't realize that they were going to use a virus uh, to cover their to cover their asses, uh, because, look, if, if if they were totally responsible for a financial collapse and it were obvious to all the citizens, you know, the state houses and Washington, D.C., and the banks would have already been overrun, probably, with angry citizens, because I don't think people fully realize what's coming. This, this financial collapse hasn't even been realized yet.
0: Right. How are you dealing with this kind of mentally? Do you still have to go to the gym to kind of break away from... This craziness, or are you able to kind of compartmentalize everything? Well, you know, ironically, I got a membership
1: in a gym. Uh, If I if I uh, if I want to, it's a twenty four hour place. It's a it's called the Quad City Strongman Facility, and it's an old school gym. I mean, it's even got the you know the 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 big Atlas balls and all that sort of stuff, uh, Atlas stones and powerlifting equipment, and it's got a lot of kettlebells and things like that. So I could go down there. three o'clock in the morning to work out if I wanted to, you know, so that's, a, right. that's a, that's a, that's a great thing. Just, uh, but you know, I've got, I've got three daughters, one just went to college, uh, on a rowing and, and an academic scholarship. I've got a girl that's going to be a junior and a daughter that's a six year old going into first grade. And look, if I was single and didn't have any children, you know, I could adjust, I could do whatever I had to do, but you know, when right. you raising kids in a world like this, that, that, uh, that people are trying to hijack, well, it's, you know, it's a little unsettling. It's a little unsettling. and I'm sure there's a lot of
0: parents out there that feel the same way. It was kind of crazy when this first kind of kicked off in March. You had all these kind of gyms owners being arrested or doors being boarded up, and it was setting, for me, I I think your health is very important. Obviously, if you're shuttered in and kind of shut down like we were or currently are, you're kind of, I kind of, it seemed like the wrong message to send out, like, hey, you can't train, you can't be fit. It was just kind of a weird situation.
1: You know, this is, this is dog training 101. The masks, uh, the lockdown, the, you know, it's, it's the way I look at it is it's dog training 101. Most of the citizens that aren't aware of what's going on are, they're literally acting like Pavlov's dog. And and the media is Pavlov. And the fear-based conditioning is in full effect. People are terrified. Uh, You know, it's, it's just from a lack of awareness,
0: it's just a lack of awareness. Right. So let's bring it back all the way, kind to the beginning. Your grandparents came from Croatia and ended up in Iowa.
1: Yeah. So back in the day, when when they would arrive at the island there in New York, you know, they would they would basically ask, you know, uh, what you did for a living, all that sort of stuff, what you were good at, and then they knew where to send you. A lot of times back then, they they actually had the intelligence to go, okay, you're from. You Know northwest Croatia, it's farming and it's coal mines. Okay, southern Iowa is where you're gonna go. This is where there's this is where there's uh coal mines and, uh, and corn, right? Right, so they <laughs> they, they ended up in, in southern Iowa down in, in Albia, around Albia, Iowa, and kind of spread out from there. So,
0: what is it about the Croatian? I mean, obviously, you're bored here, but you have Krokop, you have Gorod. What about that kind of culture, about that country, produces such great fighters?
1: You know, it's really interesting that you say, I, I think, you know, when I look through Croatian history, you know, I think it was 1593, somewhere around there, you know, the, in Sisic, Croatia, the, the Croatians turned back the Ottoman Empire, you know, and Croatia is a tiny nation, I mean, currently it has 4 million citizens. So it's, it's, a, it's a tiny nation, but they have uh, one of the best basketball teams in the world in the Olympics right. always. You know, they have their, their water polo team. I, I saw them playing and winning a gold medal. You talk a bunch of, about a bunch of scary dudes. Uh, I'm a midget. I'm a midget when it comes to being <laughs> a Croatian. You know, and I, I didn't realize it because all my brothers were 6'5", and I only got the 5'10", but I just thought, you know, I, I was an anomaly just within my family. But as I started meeting more and more Croatians, as I got older, I, I went, my God, I truly am a midget for a Croatian because they there's some big, there's a big boys.
0: Right. Man. So it, no, it's fascinating because you are, do you think that kind of like you're obviously the shorter or whatever, but do you think that kind of, that added to your kind of push and drive to be successful?
1: Uh, well, you know, I was always, uh, football was my favorite sport, to be honest with you. And I, I, I made all state in football, but I played nose guard at 165 pounds. Yeah. They just, they wanted me there, but because anytime there was a pulling guard, I was in the backfield causing havoc, you know, breaking up, sprint out passes and and sweeps and all that sort of stuff. But I thought for sure, you know, I was going to be six, five, like my brothers playing linebacker for the university of Iowa, have a great (laughs) NFL career. I had it all planned out brother. And, uh. I truly did. I loved football. I, I, there was nothing more to me, nothing more exciting to me than uh, full speed collisions and, and leveling people. And I just, I loved it. But, uh, you know, as it turns out, I, I started cutting weight for wrestling in sixth grade. And I think cutting weight through the, through the winters, into the spring and into the summers for freestyle and stuff like that, I think it, it Because back then, cutting weight was just starvation. So I think ultimately I probably stunted my growth on my own. I probably would have ended up being a big guy. Right. But uh, because I was so malnourished for so many years from wrestling, um, I just didn't grow
0: like my brothers. Is it difficult to, well, obviously you're changing weight changes your body, but does that affect your training or is it you have to kind of, you just kind of keep it the same? You know, you
1: just get you get used to it. I mean, like I said, I started cutting weight as a sixth grader, which is 12 years old. I didn't know anything else my whole life. You know what I mean? Um, so you just learn and it, it, it does create mental toughness. There's no doubt about it. Um, and you just, you just, you learn to deal with it. And I remember many, many nights, you know, in high school, even laying in my, laying in my bed in the basement of my mom's house, knowing the refrigerator was just up, up the <laughs> stairs and laying there starving and thirsty with cotton mouth, you know, and everything else and knowing that I had to weigh in in the morning and all that good stuff. So it was, you
0: know, it, it, it definitely created mental toughness. Did you have a coach that kind of pushed for that kind of mental mentality or was this your decision to kind of, I'm going to excel no matter what I'm doing right now I have to cut weight? You know, it was just a way of
1: life in Bettendorf, Iowa, you know, wrestling, wrestling is king in Iowa oh, yeah. and, and Bettendorf was, Bettendorf was definitely one of the, one of the premier cities in Iowa for wrestling. I mean, we had, probably the best high school wrestling team in the history of wrestling, uh, high school, anyway, in 1982. When I was a sophomore, that team is getting inducted into the Dan Gable National Hall of Fame here on Saturday night, which I'm going to go and attend that because I looked up to all those guys on that team. And it was just a way of life. I mean, Bettendorf, you know, the, in Iowa in general, you know, crappy wrestlers go out for basketball. You know, that's just <laughs> the way it is. Yeah, uh, it's just, you know, that's the way it is. But Bettendorf, it was just a mentality of literally, like, you walk in that room and you, and you stick it out, you're going to become good. I mean, our, our third and fourth stringers can destroy most varsity guys, you know, across the state. I mean, it was just a very, very tough room.
0: So you go for wrestling. What kind of led you into, like, the martial art, like the jiu-jitsu and karate?
1: Uh, well, I boxed a little bit as a teenager also uh, under Alvino Peña. Uh, The Davenport Boxing Club, and they had at that time, you know, Michael Nunn, the the McGowan brothers, Langby, Lavon McGowan, uh, Jayoma McGowan, who I was real good friends with. Uh, They created, you know, the Antoine Eccles and a lot of other great boxers. They had the best amateur boxing team in the world or in the country at the time, and uh, so I I, uh, trained down there for a while as a teenager, and then um, I ended up. I was, I was going to junior college for wrestling. My mother got heart problems. My three older brothers and my sister were all married, had families, lived in different places around the country. And so, you know, it was, it was on me to go back home and take care of mom. So uh, she was a, nurse, a nursing director and had to retire because of health issues. So I was working three jobs, and one of those jobs was pouring concrete during the day. And it's kind of funny how fate, fate leads you down a road, you know, if you pay attention to things. Uh, one of the foremen on the job was a guy from Kentucky but he was a black belt in karate and he was bragging about how a karate man could destroy a wrestler (laughs) now now this poor poor unsuspecting Kentucky boy had no clue what he was getting himself into because he apparently not had a wrestler grab a hold of him before but he he challenged me to a fight uh, in the field out where we were working on the highway at lunchtime and I said, you, you sure you want to do that? And he's like, oh, yeah, we, you know, in his southern draw, he's like, oh, yeah, boy, we'll go out there. We'll, I'll show you what's up. And, uh, and, you know, so I said, you're not going to fire me when I kick the shit out of you, are you? And he goes, no, nope, no, nope, I won't fire you. So went out there and I just double legged him quick, took him down, slapped him around a little bit. And, uh, you yeah, know, I think he realized pretty quick. And he, he goes, you should come to my kickboxing and karate gym uh, where I train. I think you'd be really good at it. And i thought yeah i'll come i'll check it out so uh, i came four days in a row and i was not impressed they were they were teaching katas and all that sort of stuff but on friday was black belt sparring night and so right after i got done uh, with my fifth free lesson i was i was going to walk out the door and never come back Uh, i noticed that a bunch of black belts had on sparring equipment so i went in the room and i watched and they they were there were some real real good fighters and uh, for traditional karate, they were, they were really tough. And so I said, all right, I, I can do this. Right? Now this is my speed. So I signed up right away and, and kind of started from there and then got into the kickboxing. Then the Muay Thai training and all of that, and judo and some other, some other, you know, started getting into the Russian sambo as well. And, um, and then eventually the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And you know, so it kind of went from there. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of how
0: it all, how it all kind of happened and you recently actually just fought Michael Dude in a kickboxing match, correct? Yeah, Michael Nunn, uh, we've known each other for years.
1: He was the best boxer in the world for four years, best pound-for-pound boxer in the world for four years. And uh, he he wanted to get his name back out there. And I was one of the pay-per-view company. And my attorney said, well, why don't you guys uh, – why don't, why don't you guys fight each other? And uh, uh, I said, "Well, I'll, yeah, I'll do it to launch my internet pay-per-view. I'll, I'll go ahead and do it." And Michael agreed. You uh, know, do a hybrid, a kickboxing match, and, and so I can't use my my submission grappling and my, my wrestling. Right. Uh, we just went out and had a lot of fun. You know, we had we had a lot of fun, and it was it was you know for those two reasons, his personal reason, my personal reason, but more than anything, as the COVID thing went on, it was to show. To show our citizens that, that, that they need, they have the power to take back their freedom, to assemble, uh, to, to take advantage of their First Amendment rights. And, and so we have 4,000 people show up.
0: It's badass. Yeah, it's kind of cool that you guys actually, you respect each other so much. It can, obviously, I've kind of researched Michael's kind of history, and it is fascinating, the aspects of it. And seeing you got come out and do that is like, pretty cool. It's awesome. It was, you know, we
1: got criticized, of course, by a lot of the lemmings. uh,
0: Shocking!
1: Oh oh my God, you're you're going to kill people, and people are going to spread COVID everywhere, and not one mask was worn at that event. Not one mask.
0: So, how did you start setting your sights on UFC? Obviously, growing up, was that? Do you remember watching that stuff, or how do you kind of lead into UFC?
1: Well, I mean, I was I was already a United States uh, champion when the first UFC came out. So the minute that that came out, I first realized that my sport had actually been created. So you know, it was. I, I mean, the minute I saw it, I said, "This is it. This is my sport. I'm going to win a world title."
0: Crazy. So. Was there any sort of fear, kind of jumping out there, putting yourself out there to defend not only your name but kind of like your your lineage? Uh, I mean, look, anytime you,
1: anytime you climb in a cave, a guy that. Uh, you know, a um, yeah I didn't consider it I really never considered it life-threatening getting your ass kicked because the, the worst can happen to you whatever but uh, you know it's it's uh as you do it longer and longer by then I' had, had a lot of kickboxing matches and as you as you fight longer it's like the matrix everything gets slower everything happens slower um, you see things happening before they happen all that sort of stuff so you you know it, it's it's just like experience, you know. It's I've never been in a gunfight before. I've had people shoot guns at me before, right? But I've never been in a gun battle, you know. And the guys that have done it a hundred times, they know what the hell they're doing. Those guys are experts. Um, me having somebody shoot a gun at me, um, you know, everything's
0: happening pretty damn fast at that point, you know. Right. I've right. never done it before, right? As the welterweight champion, you, you I think you had what five tile defenses. Is your mentality? I think so. Yeah. Is your type, mentality? Does it is it different from when you're chasing the title versus when you already have the title? And people are chasing you.
1: Yeah, it drastically changes actually, uh, because you're the you're the hungry one, working your way up through the rankings. And uh, once you win the title, you realize suddenly that every person at your weight division in the world wants to, wants to beat right. you. They they want to kick your ass. So that's when the pressure actually is on, uh, because everybody's studying you. Everybody knows you, knows what you do well. Uh, game planning against you, and, and so yeah, you get a target on your back at that point. You're the you're the you're the you're the best gunslinger in the world at the point at that point,
0: and uh, and everybody wants wants to kick your ass and take what you got. Right. When you get to that level back then, did you have a say in who your opponent would be, or is it actually based on rankings? Uh, back back then, I never had a say, and I didn't care. You
1: know, I said I'll fight the best guys, whatever. You know, and that's the way all the guys were in my camp. Um, they didn't give us a choice back then at all.
0: Right. How do you prepare for the tournament when you did the uh, UFC 16? That must be a whole other animal.
1: Well, that that was my third tournament. I mean, I did the Battle of the Masters one in Chicago, South Side of Chicago, which was. Back then, no weight divisions, no time limit, no rules. Um, Everybody in that first tournament was well over 200 pounds. I was probably 185. And then the second battle of the Masters tournament, the guys got even bigger. Um, But So those were were eight-man tournaments. You had to win three fights in one night to win the whole thing. And then uh, also those first two tournaments were winner-take-all. So second place, you didn't get paid. Uh, If you made it all the way to the championship and made it into that third fight and lost... Jeez. You went home. You went. You went home without any money. So, I was very highly motivated to pay bills back then, take care of my mother, and I was I was really on a mission. And so, I think the first the first eight man tournament it took me under six minutes to finish all three guys combined, and it really was about the no, The first one it took me probably ten minutes. The second one it took me about five minutes. So, and then uh, the championship of the second one. I was scared to death because I was fighting Andre Dudko, who looked exactly like Ivan Drago. He's from midst, <laughs> from Minsk, Belarus. He was a K one K one world heavyweight kickboxing champion and a Russian. And uh, I was watching him knock the shit out of his first two opponents, and so I was I was a little nervous going into that one. But luckily, I was able to get a takedown on him early on and, and catch him in a choke and finish him quick.
0: Is it was it difficult to kind of study these fighters because obviously this is before social media? Every fight, every camp, videos out there. How do you prepare for something you don't really know? Just kind of watching those couple of fights you can. You watch them that night,
1: man. Watch them that night, and you see what they do, and that's it. It's uh, you know, it's close to, it's close to getting off. I guess getting off your bar stool with another professional fighter and and not knowing anything about them and just getting
0: after it, you know. Right. At what point did you kind of feel like you could transition into a teacher?
1: Well, I mean, I was teaching kids and adults, uh, traditional martial arts and kickboxing before the UFC arrived. Um, I grew up in great wrestling rooms. I idolized Dan Gable. I followed his his blueprint for building championship teams and uh, championship fighters. Uh, so, so to me, um, it was just all came down to work ethic, outworking everyone that you. Every practice uh, practices had to be harder than any fight ever could be, endurance-wise. You know, a lot of endurance stuff. Uh, make up for lack of talent or a lack of, of technique by just being in such good shape that that you could run anybody out of gas, and that's kind of how we were. Of course, we worked on technique; and we were very, very keen on technique. But endurance, endurance is everything because you can be the best fighter in the world run out of gas and you're just you're not gonna get it done. So it was a, a saying that one of my coaches had that said I'd rather fight a great fighter in mediocre shape than a mediocre fighter in great shape. Right. And that's the truth because the, the guy that's mediocre but he's in, 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 in incredible shape, if he's got a good chin and and halfway good defense, he's just gonna keep walking
0: at you like a zombie. Right. So is So not many people obviously can create or have created their own fight system. And with your fight system, where did you get the confidence to kind of put that out there? That, hey, what I do works, and in turn, hey, come join my team.
1: Well, I mean, ultimately it came from, you know, a lifetime of wrestling, uh, a lot of spending time with professional boxers and training with them. You know, I got to a point where I knew that there was nobody – and I've got a TKO on my record against Matt Lindland. That was just because I, I couldn't get out of the mount. He wasn't hurting me with the punches. But I never got knocked out uh, in any fights, boxing, kickboxing, or MMA, uh, because I'm sparring with, with world-class boxers a lot, world-class kickboxers, um, you know, all of that. And I just basically what, what seemed to make sense to me to put together the jigsaw puzzle from the different elements of combatives into a system that would work and make sense, the transitions between all those arts uh, and the endurance, strength, and conditioning stuff that went with that—you know—it just just all kind of came together like that. And I, I didn't want to use my last name, but actually, um, the fighters that were training with me at the time all said, "No, you're, you're the one that put this thing together. You should use your last name." So that's kind of that was kind of their vote. Not mine.
0: Some of the fights, I mean, Matt Hughes, Tim, Jens, Robbie, like it's like the expendables of like ultimate, like these MMA guys. So there must be, there must be an intimidation factor too. Because you guys are um, all each other's corner, right? With these fights? Sure, sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the
1: great thing was we were cornering Jens, but it was Matt Hughes, Jeremy Horn and myself. We were cornering uh, Jens Bolver for his, Title defense against, uh, dang, I can't remember his name. Beat Matt Hughes twice, actually, at 170. Dropped down to 155 to take Hallman, Dennis Holman. Dropped down to 155 to take Jens' title. And Jens was such a ferocious puncher and a uh, All-American wrestler out of Boise State. Just a very dangerous guy at 150 pounds. He had the power. I watched him knock out a heavyweight against Marek one time. So, um and Hallman kept trying to take it down. He couldn't take it down. And he kept trying to pull guard. You know, and we were just, we spent the whole fight hounding Hallman for 25 minutes, calling <laughs> him a pussy, telling him to get up, you know, this and that. And by the, by the fifth round, Hallman started flipping us flipping us off and telling us to fuck off. And so anyway, we were laughing at him and badgering him and this and that. So Jen's won the fight. And we're walking back to the locker room. and Bernard Hopkins and his people were right behind us watching the fight. Awesome. And Bernard Hopkins, Hopkins goes, dude, you guys are like a pack of jackals. You guys are ruthless.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, and it's, it's it's a mental game. You know, you've got to do that. Um, they they frown on it now, I believe, in the sport. But look, it's a it's a rough sport. I mean, people are playing for keeps, and uh, and so it's it's all about mental and messing with with, uh, with the opponent of your of your athlete.
0: Right. Just, so how, not the kind of, but the recovery and the story of Matt Hughes is so inspirational, and uh, I just want to say, like, your work with him and everything, like, I, I'm so happy for that guy.
1: Yeah, he's, he's worked very hard, and nobody expected him to live, uh, I mean, even even uh, in talks with his family, uh, they were like, yeah, he's not, he's not coming out of this, you know, so uh, they were very, very depressed. Um, it was not good news, but he battled his way back, man, and it's, it's it was incredible.
0: Yeah, I think it's a testament to obviously his background and training and mentality. But he, I mean, he's a warrior, going on the shield or off of it. And uh, I think that is a testament to your system as well.
1: Well, I tell you what, Matt. Matt was also a uh, raised, you know, a farm boy and uh, extremely strong. In his prime, I'd never felt anybody at 170 pounds that strong just a just a, a physical monster um, anybody in less physical condition would have been
0: dead for sure right when you were a announcing for strike force did that kind of was that easy transition for you um it you know i guess it was easy in the
1: sense that you know from yelling instructions quickly getting information to my athletes during fights understanding what was going on, what was happening, what they had to do to counter things, to change things, uh, get out of bad positions, whatever it was. makes It made it a lot easier for me, I guess, having competed in the sport and coached it, to try and explain quickly in layman's terms to the fans at home, you know, what was happening and why it was happening. And David Dinkins, who was my producer at Showtime Sports, and Daryl Ewald, who was my producer at Access TV, were both very—they're very, they're, they're very, uh, very good at what they do. Very good producers, and they know how to coach broadcasters. And David Dickens, you know, when I worked for him first, said, "You're the why guy." You know, right. uh, during during a during a replay, you know, where most broadcasters are going to say things like, "There's a big right hand by Smith." Well, anybody can see that. Why would you say it? You need to tell them why it happened, why why Smith landed the right hand, what the other guy did wrong, you know, explain. <laughs> and so I learned, you know, that during fights, I almost coach athletes so that when they go back and watch watch their fights, you know, I'm talking about what they're doing wrong, what they're doing right, how they need to correct this, correct this footwork, their head movement, why, um, and, like, again, be the why guy. And I, I think that I was coached well in that, in that sense. And then also that, I think, helps – Fans to better understand what it is they're actually watching, which right. makes them, you
0: know, which makes them even bigger fans. Right? How kind of if I wanted to go to your gym or go to your systems, how do you guys kind of filter through people uh, that kind of want to buy to what your program is?
1: Well, I mean, there were fighters, professional fighters, who would you know call and ask if they could come and train. Uh, you know, of course, we would we would allow that. <laughs> <laughs> then there were other people who would, you know, just do the basic classes, you know, moms, and dads, and kids and all that, I had all those classes, of course. But, um, you know, the thing was, is at one time there were between 40 and 50 guys in the, in the room at one time who were all ranked in the top 10 of the world in their weight division. So no matter, no matter who you grab, you know, it was going to be a really tough five minutes, no matter what. And, uh, and we usually generally tried to switch partners every five minutes, uh, unless we were focused on one guy and just alternating guys in on him, whatever it was. But most fighters that came to us from around the world to train with us were probably, you know, generally the big fish in the little pond at their gym. Right. And so they, they weren't used to every guy that they grabbed being a world-class fighter. And so a lot of them, a lot of them didn't survive very long and decided to go back home. Uh, that's kind of just the way that the way that would go and you know i had the room at 95 degrees all the time damn um, you know yeah you know, people would halfway through practice guys would go to pick up their gym bag and just leave <laughs> and, and everybody in the room would stop and we'd always tell them we'd say if you walk out that door you're not coming back if you quit now you are not coming back and most of the time they kept walking but sometimes they'd set their bag down and continue and those were the guys that ended up being really good
0: right? and got over that mental hurdle. How diffi- difficult is it to retire, stop fighting? Do you have to suppress your urge to get back in there? Um, I never really had an urge
1: um, to, I, I mean, fighting against Michael Nunn, it's not like I had this burning desire to get punched in the face again. Right. Um, you know, that was that was merely just for fun, have a good time with Mike and uh and do my internet pay-per-view thing. So, um, what, what is hard? And I think that where the commonalities fall with, with guys in the military that i found, um, in common and talking a lot of the veterans and stuff that are going through tough times, PTSD and things like that is that, is the, the camaraderie, the bond, you know, through hard times and good times and everything else, um, that, that you, you create a fellowship, a brotherhood that, that, you know, you miss It's It's, it's, uh, because your best friends in the gym will gladly beat the living shit out of you every day to make you good enough to win a world title.
0: Right. Hey, you there? You there, Pat? I think you broke up. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, I hear you now. I'll get Yeah, right. but we'll it's, it. it's,
1: the, it's the camaraderie and the brotherhood that you miss. the intensity.
0: Ah, I love that. So what kind of led you into working more of like the tactical police and law enforcement? Was it those kind of PTSD programs you became, became part of? No, it was uh, my best friend who actually,
1: uh, Mark Hansen. he was a All-American lineman for the University of Northern Iowa, a guy that I played football against in high school. Uh, he was on the Davenport Central Blue Devils that produced Roger Craig and great roger craig from the yep. san francisco 49ers uh, jamie williams who also played pro ball a lot, of, a lot of great athletes came out of that out of that high school their football program was amazing but mark and i did not like each other in high school and in college me and i actually got two fights with each other street fights um one time in a bar and one time we met at a park and fought and he was about about 275 280 pounds he's a big boy and uh, we fought to a draw in the park that was a that was a, a hell of a war and uh, it's, it's kind of funny because uh, after college he became a police officer and we still didn't like each other but I walked into that 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 karate kickboxing gym and for my first real class and there he was and I went I can't get rid of this I just can't get rid of this guy yeah. And so so every Friday night, Mark Mark and I both were, were pretty rough rough guys without knowing, you know, traditional martial arts or kickboxing at the time. So our instructor made us fight each other every Friday night. And so we would go at it and we beat the animosity out of each other. We became best friends. And then uh, after a while he said, Hey, you wanna help me start training training my officers? because he was the defensive tactics instructor. So he got me started doing that, and, you know, but I, I knew nothing about, you know, defensive tactics. I knew nothing about rules of engagement, uh, escalation, you know, any of it. I didn't know anything. I just said, awesome, I'm going to teach the good guys how to beat the shit out of the bad guys. It's awesome. Right. right. And so through time, you know, I learned that, um, yeah, you, you, can't, you can't just choke people unconsciously. That's right. not how it works. Right. Um, so, but, uh, it was a great, great learning experience over time with him and getting my feet wet. And I started training more and more in uh, law enforcement, the military started calling and special forces started calling. Um, it just, it kind of grew from there. So I just, and honestly, uh, it's very satisfying to teach in general. Uh, that's probably when I'm the happiest, right? Uh, everything, everything, everything else in the world, every worry goes away when I'm focused on teaching. Uh, but my training in law enforcement
0: military is probably what I enjoy the most. And it is fascinating because obviously with Brazilian, or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and like, background, the background, some of the techniques might not be beneficial, but the, the mentality and some of the things you pull from those different arts, I mean, that's, those are practical training and experiences that you can actually use to survive. Absolutely. Well, and the thing is, is you know, over the years, you
1: realize um, in training, I was the bad guy in a lot of scenarios in in simulation stuff, and you know, other scenarios, uh, felony stop, felony warrant stops, and 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 learning, you know, building and room clearing, and and where trouble can happen, and learning their world, and then adjusting my training to fit their world, and, and having a lot of conversations and a lot of training sessions where things would 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 change and evolve, you know, ever evolving and always having an open mind. And that's something that was, you know, to me made sense. And so, you know, we learned that, you know, there's always the, the brown belts and black belts that will be in a, a law enforcement or military class. Right. And we, always, we always would take those guys and say, all right, get this guard, and you guys go for submissions and then stop them you know, two minutes into it and throw a training knife off to the side and say, first one to the knife wins and right. they claw and scratch and bite and then doing whatever they can. And by the time they get to the knife, you know, you'd stop them and say that in no way, shape or form for jujitsu." but right. you you know, so, um, you know, I'm not proud of it, but, you know, growing up being a wrestler and somebody who just, I think I was the right size for, for big guys to pick on. It's like, I was a legitimate, a legitimate win. And a, a justifiable loss, right? So I was the guy that a lot of times, big guys would always pick fights with me. I don't know why, but I, so I was in a lot of street fights as a, as a bouncer, security guy, uh, and just a guy with a wrestling mentality, right. just to not take any shit off people. That I had dealt with enough pretty 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 hairy situations in life to modify things to that that made sense for staying alive in a street fight, uh, especially when you got a gun on your hip or a long gun
0: strapped to you. Yeah, it's crazy how when you do those real practical training exercises, how kind of all the techniques, and the fancy stuff you learn, kind of goes out the window. And uh, I, I definitely think that training is, that's the best out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's no reason in a street fight that I would take a fight to the ground. Um, it's just, it's not going to happen. Um you know, just just for fear of his buddies kicking me in the head and things like that, and right. keeping my head on a swivel. It's, it's the same thing for teaching cops. You know, don't don't take a guy down to prone position unless you got somebody watching your ass. You know, and, and uh, you know, those sort of situations just just situational awareness that you learn after a lot of years of working with with law enforcement, military.
0: It's crazy now with the law enforcement that obviously with everything going on, but they have all these all this training, but. It, when it, before they'd make an action, now they have to think of someone videotaping. They you know, almost think like they're afraid to do their job. And some of these guys, women, have incredible training. It's kind of a weird, kind of a weird mindset um, for them to go through. It has to be. Well, unfortunately, you know the way the media works now.
1: Um, up is down, down is up, good is bad, bad is good. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a reason that a lot of good cops are retiring early and, and leaving. Uh, you know, and I watched it, you know, because I've been involved with training law enforcement for 25 years. Uh, you know, I watched big cities, you know, run by, you know, the wrong types of politicians, Right. you know, right. Who, were, who were, you know, uh, not paying for training. Uh, the officers were not being trained. They were lowering hiring standards, physical and mental. Um, and so, you know, even though these people had the right intentions, they might not have been somebody the best suited for that that job with that, that level of, uh, of stress. And, you know, so when you've got people who, A, can't take care of themselves physically uh, and their first, their, their, their first choice is, is go straight to the sidearm, uh, you know, if you're going to have bad situations arise, especially when society in general becomes more and more hostile towards law enforcement and towards authority figures. Um, where, where you just get a powder keg and, and, and the thing is is people can say what they want. Um, as these cities, these Democrats uh, talk about and, and vote to defund law enforcement, well it was by design to cause this problem in the first place. These people think in terms of, of decades and half centuries. Uh, they, right. they have a long, they have a long game and people, people need to understand that where
0: they're, uh, this was all by design. What is the most difficult thing for you as a teacher?
1: Um, you know, I think the, the one thing that I have uh, found is that we don't, we don't go down to the lowest common denominator. Uh, there are, and you know, you've, you've seen it in law enforcement. Uh, somebody who's in administration says, uh, okay, you're the defensive tactics instructor, and I'll have kids you know, they're, they're literally kids uh, who've been hired by the department who've never been in a fight in their life and suddenly you know they're they're the defensive tactics instructor. Right. No, no, no clue how to teach. And so I've got five days to teach these guys not only how to do what I'm teaching them, but how to teach it. Um, yeah, so it's it can be tough. And I've I've you know, Don Roberts, who's my my uh, my partner in the training company, Firehorse Combatives. You know, we've we've stopped training and said, listen, we're not saying this to anybody specific, but we're, we're not we're not going down to the lowest common denominator in this class. You will you will step up and you will do what you're what you have to do or you will not get a certificate in this in this course. And, uh, you know, there are times where you you got to work extra <laughs> extra hard right. with some right. of these folks uh, who who might not be able to grasp what you're teaching. You know, try that? to keep it. Try to keep it as simple as possible. You know the. Right. We call we call it the three H's. Control the head, the hands, and the hips in a fight. Uh, if you control those those three H's and and uh, are are mindful of that sort of stuff, especially the hands. What's in the hands? What are the hands doing? You know, the, it's a it's a lot better chance you're going to go home alive.
0: Right. I kind of like the idea that while there's the physical aspect of that, you also have the articulation and kind of the mental to do the right action based on what's being shown to you.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and, you know, it's, uh, you know, for the people that haven't done it their whole lives, you know, for me, I I started wrestling at five years old. So I know my left from my right. There's people who don't even know their left from their right. They can try to train. Right. uh, it, it, it It can be a little challenging.
0: So I know you talked about in the beginning kind of your podcast, but where can someone kind of check out the Conspiracy Farm, and how often do you guys uh, post new content?
1: Yeah, we, we try to do at least one show a week. We have done during COVID, we've done five shows per week, many weeks. Um, that gets a little exhausting, uh, but we've had so many good good guests on. But people can go to theconspiracyfarm.com and find all of our our episodes there, and uh, and then the only thing that I push supplement wise is uh, a product that i feel i've never seen anything like it in my life and i'm not even remotely joking Uh, i've I've never tried to sell a product until i ran across this product the only reason i knew it was going to work is because as a professional athlete i was lucky enough because i have damaged a damaged respiratory system from black mold in my mother's house the basement leaked every time it rained and there was black mold everywhere my lungs got jacked up and I never could figure out why I had to train twice as hard as everybody else to be able to have the same endurance as everybody else. Until I came across a product as a pro fighter in the beginning of my career. A guy got me a product that raised my oxygen levels at a cellular level by 20%. Wow. And that, wow. that literally changed everything. And I was able to do things endurance-wise. I could outrun. Suddenly I was outrunning uh, college cross-country teams and trail races. Um, I, I was at 5'10", dunking a basketball, benching 365 pounds at 185 pounds. Um, it just took my training to a whole different level where I wasn't building up lactic acid. I could get up the next morning not be sore and train like a madman. And I got all my fighters on it. All my That's one thing that we were known for. We could run anyone out of gas. And I kept that product totally secret from the world because I didn't want anybody to know get my right. hands on this stuff. And, and I kept it secret for over a decade. Well, that product hasn't existed for a long time. The product of Black Oxygen Organics came out, and it is uh, literally, uh, it comes from 60,000 year old bog mud. And people will think I'm crazy, but it is full of economic acids and minerals. And uh, I've been selling it for three months, and the, the, the testimonials I've gotten back from not only world class athletes. But people with diabetes, people with asthma, uh, people with high blood pressure, because they're putting the minerals, the true minerals from 60,000-year-old bog mud. The guy figured out a way to patent a CO2 pressurized process to remove the fulvic and humic minerals and, and acids from this, from this bog mud and concentrate it into a powder. And when you put it into your body... Stuff happens, man. That's all I can say. I can't claim that this treats, prevents, or cures any disease. Right. But I can tell you that people suffering from a lot of uh, autoimmune system problems, uh, a lot of uh, respiratory issues, arthritis issues, are suddenly uh, hitting me back after a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, saying, my God, this has changed my life. We've already got a world champion fighter uh, who had his endurance completely changed because of it. my buddies that are ultra runners, hundred mile race runners, have dropped from a minute to even two minutes off their per mile time, and these guys have been running for decades, and they're in their fifties, and suddenly dropping massive amounts of time. So people can go to blackoxygenorganics.com/slash pat millerich if they want to order the powder. And I can tell you, I'll tell you right now, if you've got if you've got health issues or you want to perform and have an amazing endurance that you've never had before. Uh, uh, this is this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. It's the biggest wave in human health, healing, and, and athletic performance that I've ever seen in my life. I think I cops, saw- cop, cops, and cops and military should absolutely be on this. And it's 100% organic and plant based, so you will not test
0: positive for anything. I think I saw a video of Boss Root talking about it, and seeing, yep, him, that, by- seeing him that excited, I was like, "This guy's not going to bullshit." And, uh, it was kind of, like, I'm awesome. telling you,
1: dude, I got I got Boss on it. And he called me up while I was driving on the highway one day <laughs> and goes, dude, dude, this is incredible. And so, you know, I've had, I've even had autistic moms call me bawling because their sons are talking again. Because it, it's nanonite in size so it can go inside of the cell, deliver 45% more oxygen at a cellular level. It activates the mitochondria, which is the furnace of the cell. And then it, when it leaves the cell, it drags. Uh, heavy metals, toxins, and even viruses out of the cell with it. So uh, people people just have no idea how powerful this stuff is until they get on it.
0: Right. It's cool seeing you so into the health and fitness too, like the organic and you see so many people get so stuck up on like the FDA and all this crazy shit. But it's it, the organic way. I've, I've kind of realized that's kind of, that's the way you have to be. Right. And for people to understand
1: why this works so well is because the CO two process, right, to concentrate it. So it's got no chemical process to remove the fulvic uh, minerals, which which has been used in, in other other processes, other companies have used. Which you know it, it, it technically kills the natural enzymes of most of it. Where this is this is totally organic, and your body accepts it. Your body truly accepts it. Uh, it matches matches perfectly with, with the human body. Um, but a doctor, I forget his name. I read a book years ago called uh, "Dead Doctors Don't Lie," and you know where he talks about you know, men that live in the Himalayan foothills can father children into their 80s because the, 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 the food that there's the the soil that their food is grown in in the Himalayan foothills is so mineral rich that their bodies perform the way they're supposed to into their 80s and 90s. Where we're eating food that's been grown in the same soil for so long that it's stripped the you know the mass production of food here has stripped the soil of all of its mineral content, so we're eating roughage with, with, with nothing in it.
0: Right. Man, that's fascinating stuff, Pat. Yeah, it's neat. It's neat what's happening. Well, I want to thank you for the time today. This is uh, You definitely are a legend and it's an honor to speak with you. Well, it's nice to, nice to finally uh, put a face with a name,
1: man. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exume the truth. I'm Matt Kundel, host of the Sound Off podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.